Welcome to the Daniel Wortman Show. It is live 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between. Welcome into the show. Thanks for joining us. We are delighted to have on the show in just a, in just a few minutes Robert Wilson, author of the Football Manifesto. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation looking through uh, U.S. soccer, the global game, etc., um, let's just get caught up on the weekend. Probably the, the most ho- uh, high-profile race to the finish is in the Premier League. You've got Manchester City and Liverpool just battling it out, back and forth, back and forth. Two heavyweights going at it. Um, personally, I'm rooting for Liverpool. They are my second favorite team in the world behind Barcelona, which is my, my number one club. It's, it's my, it's my uh, favorite club in the world, but uh, I root for Liverpool uh, in, in the premier league and, and follow them closely as well. And um hoping they pull it out. They haven't won the league in a while and um, Manchester city, you know, scrappy. They, they, they are, they're finding ways to, to pull out the victories. Um, and Liverpool keeps putting pressure on them, keeps putting pressure on them. Um, Manchester City has a game in hand. Liverpool's ahead by two points in the table. So as we wind down these last few matches, if if, if Manchester City wins out, they're going to win the league, uh, If Liverpool, even if Liverpool wins out. But if Manchester City draws or loses any of those matches and Liverpool wins out, then then Liverpool will win the league. So it's going to be it's going to be a fascinating fight to the finish. Meanwhile, in American soccer, it's uh, more of a snooze fest when it comes to the domestic game. Uh, there's no excitement. No one's paying attention. No one seems to care. Uh, attendance at matches is is down. Um, when you when you look across the league, there's there's no real excitement or buzz happening. Uh, the TV viewership numbers are just woeful. Um, they're not very good. And then on later in the week on Thursday, you had the news break that uh, Major League Soccer was now going to um, embrace FIFA compliance in the area of solidarity payments and training compensation. And um, for those of us who, who are constantly... Uh, looking for U.S. soccer to improve, to get better, to reach its potential, we are constantly talking about FIFA compliance and that this is a big area where U.S. soccer is not doing its job. It is not making sure that it is following its own bylaws and 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 that its members are doing the same. There are a lot of people out there who make excuses for Major League Soccer MLS fans, MLS leadership make excuses for themselves and and they'll say they'll give excuses uh, about, you know, how they've invested so much money or they've come in under one set of rules. Well, it's it's not it's not our problem and it and it shouldn't be American soccer's fault that US soccer didn't follow its rules in the beginning, isn't following its rules now. And therefore, because they've done sweetheart deals and 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 allowed Major League Soccer to operate however they want to, that somehow uh, the rest of American soccer should be punished because of that. Um, 
And so th- that excuse is so weak. It is so lame. There, there's only one exception where U.S. soccer does not have to follow FIFA's rules, and it's in their bylaws. It's bylaw 103, and that bylaw states that, that they have to follow. And all of their members, that includes Major League Soccer, they are a member of the U.S. Soccer Federation. It means that every member, the Federation itself, has to follow all of FIFA's rules except where a U.S. law intervenes. That's not a lawsuit. It's not a threat of a lawsuit. It's not a threat of legal action. It's not because I kind of don't think this should happen. It says a U.S. law. It doesn't say, well, somebody came in under these set of rules, so therefore we don't think they should have to follow them. None of that. And for years, Sunil Galati, Don Garber, Others at U.S. Soccer and MLS have made these lame excuses and and in some cases outright lies in terms of U.S. law, bylaw 103 of of the U.S. soccer um, rules. In in regards to all of those areas, they they have been making misstatements about what the federation can do what the federation should be doing what major league soccer should be doing and so now that you see um, mls reverse this decision it it clearly shows the hypocrisy and the the um, excuses for what they are that they they were shallow attempts to mislead the public so that they could get away with doing whatever they wanted for however long they could. And now that the market is starting to take talent away from Major League Soccer without compensation because they have not been following the rules in regards to solidarity payments and training compensation, the Federation has not been doing for a very long time um, keeping up with the, the, the ITC, the International Transfer Certificate Information for Players, to be able to track where they have been playing and and keeping that in a database so they had proof whenever a player was sold or signed that they could then have those records match up for the disbursement of funds uh, of uh, in terms of solidarity payments and training compensation. That part hasn't been done by the Federation. So in both cases, we have seen willful violations of solidarity payments and training compensation as well as other rules like promotion and relegation that fifa requires and now that that major league soccer is feeling that pain by having their players leave without compensation they are now all of a sudden magically without any u.s laws changing they are now able to implement solidarity payments and training compensation it is it it is just it's really laughable, honestly. It really is laughable that we are watching this charade just continuing to to, to take place. And, and as a matter of fact, um, last year during the the 2018 uh, U.S. Soccer presidential election, I worked with Eric Winalda, ran his campaign for president of U.S. Soccer, and he, along with some other candidates, were saying a lot of these things about how there was no violation of U.S. law, that these things should be put in place. As a matter of fact, I want to show you a few clips of Eric speaking at the U.S. Youth Soccer Forum. It was a candidate forum in Philadelphia last year. 
at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. And I want you to hear some of his comments. And, and in a few minutes, uh, I'll show you some of uh, Sunil Galati's remarks later that day. And, and I want to juxtapose and, and compare and contrast what, what is going uh, on between those of us who are calling for FIFA compliance and then the excuses. And, and, and I think it's pretty fascinating to watch. So take, take a listen to this. Watch this. This is Eric speaking last year at the U.S. Soccer Forum. The professional game does affect your business, and here's why. When we only service 18 markets... Who's that put in alert? Everybody else. The Federation has not figured out a way to service all of them because they've isolated much of their interest uh, to, to basically provide a protection program for the MLS. Well, this is what happens to the 99% when the 1% doesn't cooperate. We all feel it. All of us. These are all massive pieces of the puzzle to you. This is the tip of the iceberg. This is the reason why your club exists, to develop players. And you deserve compensation for that. The whole idea of, of if, so if you don't understand what the solidarity payment is and how it applies to you, Michael Essien came out of Africa. And then FIFA recognized that in his process and in the development of his career, eventually he was worth $26 million. And basically these African uh, nations were getting pillaged and never compensated. And we need, as a protection policy, FIFA in, in, interjected and said, all right, that can't happen. We need to take care of, of, the, of the development of academies and or uh, clubs. And that's why that's been put in place. That needs to be put in place here. That when, when you develop a player, uh, and through that, that, those mechanisms, when we are FIFA compliant, then they make sense. Right now, none of this makes sense. When we change things, through structure, through cooperation, through leadership, we're going to be able to finally be the country we were always supposed to be. We're going to find our space within the global game. And when we get our act together, we will eventually dominate. So, so those were some of Eric's thoughts about solidarity payments and training compensation, the treatment of the Federation, um, of all of its members and, and basically allowing Major League Soccer to operate under uh, its own set of preferences and rules at the expense of everyone else. And, and then later um, that night, uh, Sunil Galati got up to speak and just went off. He went off on all of the candidates. He, he especially went off on, on some of the things that Eric talked about, really got under his skin, and you, can, you could tell it in the way that he was talking but if you listen to the words he's saying these these excuses he was giving a year ago and then to watch what happened thursday when major league soccer announced that they are going to now honor this without any change in u.s law proves that everything sunil was saying was was false in regards to following fifa rules take a listen to what sunil galati at the time current president uh he, he had about a month left in his term uh, said at the U.S. Soccer Awards Gala later. And then I hear that. some things that are being discussed these days about some solutions to our issues, and including some that you heard today, and I'll talk about those, and the issue of promotion and relegation, which really doesn't affect too many people in the room. But this is going to solve all of our player development issues. 
except people have come in under one set of rules. It's equivalent to going to a tournament and saying, we're now going to play seven aside or 13 aside. And people have paid a lot of money. And as I said a couple of days ago, I'm agnostic about the topic, but the people who have paid a lot of money to come in aren't agnostic. And the empirical evidence is at best undecisive to think that would solve all of our problems. But in the last year, probably given some things that have happened in Washington, there's been a lot of fact checking going on. So let's check a couple of facts today. And then I heard that the Federation is out of compliance with 13 FIFA statutes, which is false. That's not an opinion. So the great Senator Moynihan from New York said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Everyone, but he also said, everyone is not entitled to their own facts. These are facts. And in a few cases where we are out of compliance, it's because being in compliance would be violative of American law. And we have two parent bodies, the US Olympic Committee, and under that, because of the Ted Stevens Amateur and Olympic Sports Act, and FIFA. And we've made it very clear that we're not gonna violate American law in order to be in compliance with FIFA rules. On training and compensation and solidarity payments, which got brought up today, same thing. We've spent a lot of money with a lot of lawyers. We have no issue with it, except the players have an issue with it. And the Players Association has made it very clear that if the youth clubs seek redress, that they will sue the youth clubs. This is the MLS Players Association representing, in this case, the case was about Michael Bradley and DeAndre Yedlin and so on. So sure, we could say we're gonna do that. But you gotta think through these issues and you can't misstate the facts. So obviously, big difference in what, um, you know, both people were talking about, you know, Eric's talking about some of the injustice within U.S. soccer and the preferential treatment of Major League Soccer and the fact that we should have uh, solidarity payments and training compensation. And that should that should be applicable to to every club in America, not just Major League Soccer, every single club in America. If you are doing the job of developing players, you should be compensated for that. And, and for all of those who get into this argument about, well, pay to play, and they're already getting paid, how do you begin to shift some of that? How do you begin to reorient by implementing other revenue sources? It's going to be a gradual change. It's not going to be overnight. But if you had clubs compensated for development, now you start to shift some of the focus. And it's part of a bigger pot, a bigger picture of uh, of things that need to happen things that need to to shift and change in order for u.s soccer for american soccer at large to reach its potential and um and so some of this we're going to get into in just a few minutes with robert wilson um it's going to be it's going to be a really good conversation he has a lot of insight into the federation the global game and, and kind of what is possible what should we be doing he's got some interesting ideas about that as well so um in in just a few minutes he'll be joining us and and, and before he comes on i just want to to say um if, if you have not um learned or heard about charity water you you should go to charitywater.org they're doing incredible work around the globe in regards to 
bringing clean drinking water to communities that need it. It changes not just the individual's lives, it, ch- it changes entire communities' lives. It, it opens up doors of opportunity and progress uh, around the globe and, and goes beyond just personal health, but it also changes the, the it has a major economic impact on these communities as well. So um, we'll be we'll be right back in just a minute, but here is a word. Welcome back to the show. I am uh, pleased to have joining us Robert Wilson, author of the Football Manifesto. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. So um, you've got quite an extensive uh, love affair, long love affair with the game and have spent time uh, in Brazil uh, for, for quite a while. Um, kind of give us a little bit of a background of your story. How did you fall in love with the game and, and um, you know, follow the game, get connected to the game? Well, first and foremost, the initial connection was – in St. Louis. I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And even though St. Louis is not necessarily known by everyone to be a soccer capital, it most certainly was what I was growing up. Um, as you probably know, St. Louis is a, a Catholic town. And even though I grew up in the, in the inner city um, and played, you know, the traditional three sports, baseball, basketball and American football, football slash soccer was huge in St. Louis because of the Catholic school system. And so as a kid growing up, soccer, football received as much coverage 
in the high school sports pages as the other three sports. So you just couldn't avoid it. I didn't play it going up. I played the traditional, you know, basketball, baseball, and American football, which were big in the inner city. But that's how I first got my exposure. And then I really got the bug, so to speak, when I moved to Brazil um, and began following the sport very, very, very closely, beginning in the, in the late 1970s. So you 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 move you get to Brazil, and obviously that is a different world uh, in terms of football. It is it is a religion down there. My my uh, connection to kind of understanding. A little bit of Brazil. I've not been there uh, yet, but uh, when I was growing up, a friend of mine, he and his family moved to Brazil, and um, they came back about I don't know 18 months later for a, a visit. And you know, we were kind of the same way, just you know, baseball, basketball, football, and and they come back and we're like, hey, you want to play baseball? And they're like, no, we play football, but you you would probably call it soccer. And then they began to explain to me the the religion that is football in in brazil and and just how everyone plays it this is this is just you know such a a big part of the culture and fabric of uh, the country um so in in kind of looking at your story you you grow up in in you grow up in st louis and you you come in contact with the game and then you know obviously brazil you begin to to really be immersed in a footballing culture and that experience. How did that kind of lead you or influence you to kind of take a look, uh, a deep dive into the American soccer system uh, led by the U.S. Soccer Federation? Well, the fact of the matter is I've lived in Brazil twice. Um, the first time I arrived was in the late seventies and um I lived here four years, became a high school math teacher, and that's when I got my first exposure. Um, I married a Brazilian woman, and then we moved back to the States. And I'm a lawyer by profession, uh, began practicing law in New York and didn't really like law, so I migrated over to financial services and eventually wound up at Citibank. And for Citibank, I did investments in the emerging markets. And eventually, in the late 90s, that's what brought me back to Brazil, representing an investment fund that Citibank sponsored down here for Brazil's privatizations. So out of the, the money that we raised, we raised you know almost a billion dollars, which back in those days was a big deal for Brazil. But out of that $2 billion, $15 million was was spent to get a controlling stake in a then first division Brazilian football club. And that experience is really kind of what brought me into the nitty gritty of what the football world was all about, not just from a cultural perspective, but from a business perspective. And during that period of time, and again, this is you know quite a while ago, I got in touch with then a fledgling MLS. Um, I had known some people at, at MLS actually from the 1994 World Cup, which I was marginally involved with uh, when the Cup was there in 94. So I called up those guys to try to pick their brains about potentially, you know, collaborating, maybe uh, player exchange, et cetera, et cetera, using Brazil as kind of a, a factory of talent. 
for a lot of reasons, it didn't go anywhere. But that's really what kind of triggered the, you know, the business side and the interest in following what was going on in the United States. And of course, by that time, um, MLS was still was still a fledgling league. But it was interesting to see the juxtapositions between what was going on in Brazil, what was going on in Europe, in the United States, and also what was going on in Europe and globally. So I found I found out, you know, basically a tremendous amount of detail. And of course, when the World Cup was awarded to Brazil in, I guess it was nine, eight, 2009 or 10, that picked up interest even further. And so I began diving into the details of what was going on, why it was going on, the way it was going on. And, uh, and eventually that led uh, shortly after uh, the World Cup in 2014. It led in, you know, roughly 2018, about this time, roughly last year, I got the book out onto the marketplace. So the Football Manifesto was really a result of that research and and that kind of experience firsthand of of managing a, a Brazilian football club. So, I I'm, I looked at some and pulled kind of some uh, kind of some ex um, excerpts from the book and some things that I wanted to kind of ask you about that I, I found fascinating. Um, you said that since the founding of the first North American Soccer League, the often referred to as the NASL, in, six, in 1968, no outdoor football league, men or women, has ever generated a profit. Reach, research shows that this half century of losses, year in, year out, is due to three factors. First, the branding strategy that football has adopted. Second, the misapplication of the proper business model at the league and club level. And third, the motivation, or lack thereof, to adopt the global standard of excellence at the football league and club level. Can you expand on some of that in terms of first the, the branding strategy that uh, American soccer has kind of adopted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the, probably the challenge today in the United States and nobody really talks about that, which is why I decided to address that issue of branding for an entire chapter in the book. I think people have, in some sense, unconsciously approached what's going on with the sport from a branding perspective in the United States, just because the powerful engine, which is U.S. media, um, has basically molded a tremendous amount of minds about how to brand a sport. And so the, the tendency is to simply follow the big four, namely the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and, and the National Hockey League, follow that branding model, which is a generic branding model for sports, and just simply adopt whatever you think makes sense. Um, so that's why we've got names like the San Jose Earthquakes um, or the Red Bull, which is a, you know, a beverage um, these things, quite frankly, don't connect with people. And when you add in the, the demographic changes since 1990 in the United States, um, you may know this, but in 1990, the population in the United States was about 250 million people. Today, the population is 328. And that increase of almost 80 million people 
has largely been, not exclusively by any means, but has largely been from immigrants or firstborn generation of immigrants. And so what that really means is that we've got a population in the United States that's roughly the size of Germany. That's about 80 million people, uh, not to mention the normal kind of traditional Americans that also support the sport. But what it also means is that from a kind of a psychological perspective, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Carl Jung, the psychologist, but Jung speaks to something called the collective unconscious. And, and what that basically means is that there are all kinds of archetypes that are constantly flowing through our minds about the kind of culture we come from, the kind of culture we're interacting with. In short, there is a tremendous amount of variety and cultural richness in the United States and even Canada that we aren't tapping into for branding. And because we aren't tapping into the brands that are there kind of staring us in the face from these various cultural and ethnic groups and music, um, design, fashion, food, everything you can possibly imagine, we're not tapping into that richness. And so as a result, we're choosing brands that just don't resonate. And it also means that we're attempting to penetrate the marketplace for that particular branding model with the same brand or the same brand strategy. So for instance, those four big leagues, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball and hockey, generate about $25 billion a year annually in revenue. And of course that's increasing as we go, go by in time. So $25 billion is a big and powerful marketplace. If you adopt brands that are similar to the existing brands, regardless of the sports you're, you're bringing to the table, it makes it incredibly difficult to break into that from a revenue perspective because you're not really offering anything new. Um, the person that probably captures this concept the best that I've read recently is a guy named Steve Stout who wrote a book and also created a, a video series that I think you can get on YouTube um, called The Tanning of America. And basically, this is a direct reference to the fact that the, the mosaic that the United States has become, which is, you know, multicultural, multilingual, um, is in fact a huge benefit and something that could be used to leverage the sport into a higher revenue category. And of course, that that's never been done. So that's the first thing that I think needs to be done, is that we've got to create new brands that take this sport to the next level. Um, on the business side, what I discovered in the research is that there are really five business models for football clubs. And in the United States, particularly following the, the mold of the, the big four sports, there's basically only one model that the big four sports use and that's the high net revenue, the high net worth individual who basically brings his money to the table and buys a sports franchise and owns a sport franchise. Now, obviously, that can be done in small groups, but it's basically a model that says, look, if you're in the top one-tenth of one percent of the wealthy in the United States, you can own a club, you can own a professional club. And in large measure, at MLS, even though MLS is structured differently, 
than the big four sports, and we can talk about that. But it's still the same high net worth individual who can own a professional sports team. Even the leagues below MLS, you know, whether you're talking about USL or the failed NASL or NPSL, all of those leagues, every incarnation that we got and have ever put on, on paper and, and launched has been based on the same model that you've got to have a lot of money to own a, own a club. You look outside the United States, you find that that's really not the case. Um, in Brazil, for instance, I'm a member of the Flamengo club. Flamengo is owned by the fans. Um, now, it's obviously not at the same level of organization and competence off the field that, say, you know, the German model brings us. But certainly in terms of on And so it's it's very fair as a as a as a club member after you pay your monthly fee, you go to the club. It is literally a physical place where you can go. Um, they have Olympic swimming, they have volleyball, they have uh, basketball, they have rowing, they have yoga classes. In other words, it's it's almost like a YMCA. Um, or a YWCA, but a branded version of a YWCA. Um, so that club concept doesn't exist in the United States. And I think until that club concept does exist in the United States, we won't really have a culture of football in the United States. Um, I think what we've got today, lamentably, is a, a literally a pyramid that is quite confused in terms of the game plan about what should happen with youth, what should happen with amateur and adult, and what should happen at the pro level. Um, and not to mention the issue of pro, you know, promotion and relegation, which is a, is a completely separate issue. But to go back to this issue of business models, there are basically five business models, globally speaking, for football clubs. MLS is one model. That's the model where you've got a single entity. And of course, MLS really is not a single entity. It's really two entities. It's two LLCs in Delaware. One is called Soccer United Marketing. The other is called MLS. So those two separate legal vehicles are basically the structure of what we have for the sport in the United States today at the pro level. Um, the other model we also know very well in the United States is what I've already mentioned, which is the high net worth individual model, where you've got a bunch of rich guys or gals and what have you, they put their money together and, and, and basically buy a club. So that's the standard model for professional sports in the United States. What we don't know and what we don't really see in the United States um, are the other three models for football. At the far end of the spectrum is, you know, the Real Madrid model or the Barcelona model, where the fans literally own 100% of the club. Now, obviously, there are, you know, there are, not, there are nuanced have you involved with that, but Real Madrid has 91,000 paying members. They pay a monthly fee to, to have a part in that club, and they also vote for the club's administration, who's going to run the club on a day-to-day -day basis. The same thing is true at, 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 um, at Barcelona. Barcelona has 180,000 paying fans monthly that generate for the club about $30 million a year in revenue just from fan membership dues. And that 
$30 million, as you can imagine, weighs heavily on the finances of the club. And of course, Barcelona is generating about a half a billion euros a year in revenue from television, commercial, and what have you. But that 30 million helps. And if you can imagine creating new brands in the United States where fans would be attracted and be, would be willing to support a club along the lines of Real Madrid or Flamengo or Barcelona, you would say, gee whiz, why not? Uh, especially when you consider that Barcelona's uh, fan membership for for a year is uh, roughly 30 million bucks. That's like five or six times what the MLS salary cap is. So it obviously can be done. The other issue, we've got, you know, that at the far end of the spectrum is kind of, let's call it the Barcelona model. Um, you've got a, another model, which is even more fascinating from my perspective for the United States, which is the Bundesliga model. And as you probably know, the Bundesliga uh, requires by law, this is a federal law in the country, that all clubs have to be owned by the fans. And they call it the 50% plus one share rule, which basically means that all the clubs have to be owned by the fans, at least for voting control. Um, Bayern Munich, which is the club that we probably know the most in the United States, is 75% owned by the fans and 25% split equally between Allianz Insurance, Adidas, and Audi, the car company. Um, so that model, I think, would be a fantastic model to bring to the United States, and I think that can be done. And in large measure, the book that I wrote, The Football Manifesto, and the things that I'm trying to do now, basically move in the direction of bringing the, the German model, the Bundesliga model, to the United States. The third model is the Swansea City model, which is where the fans don't own a majority stake, they own a minority stake, but they are represented on the board of directors and have a vote. But the majority stake is controlled by private high net worth individuals. Uh, Swansea is owned by actually one of the co-owners of, I think it's DC United. Um, but Swansea City, interestingly enough, is about the size of an MLS franchise in the sense that the stadium that they play in is about a 21, 22,000 seat stadium. Now, of course, Swansea, if I'm not mistaken, fell out of the EPL, out of the first division league in, in, the, United, in the United Kingdom last year and is not, I think, playing now in the second division. Um, but when they, were, when they were bought by this investment group, they were, in fact, in the first division. Now, the, you know, the question is, which I've always tried to figure out, I can't really figure out is why would anybody when they can invest in a club in Europe in the in the top five leagues of Europe why would they decide to invest in the United States instead um, because the deal in Europe always involves promotion and relegation and always involves a tremendous amount of money so when you look at the five business models that are available and you look at the five business models as they're applied to the United States we really are not applying any of the other th three options for business models for clubs in the United States at all. I guess Chattanooga moves in that direction, but really I don't think that they get there based on, on the membership model concept, because technically speaking, you don't have to be wealthy to invest in football 
in other countries around the world. There's no reason you need to be wealthy to invest in football in the United States. So the um, one of the things that you kind of build off of talking through the business models, you talk talking through um, some of the the strategic missteps or in some cases just outright um, intentional um, actions that are are kind of in, in your view limiting US soccer. Um, you you get to a, a, a point in the book in chapter four where you, where you start talking about, the role of three overlapping monopolies and um, you, you kind of compare those to, you know, like a, a three, I, I would look at it as like a three legged stool. Um, these three monopolies, uh, it's like a triangle as you d- describe yeah. it in the book. And, and those are UEFA, FIFA. Um, the second is U S soccer along with MLS and soccer United marketing and then lastly, the NFL, the National Football League. Can you kind of give some insight as to, to why you've gone there with those three um, organizations or collected collections of organizations uh, in terms of why those, those particular uh, interests are um, keeping a lid on the potential of American soccer? Yeah, I, I think that the, um, the, the, the research led me to a series of facts that, you know, you, it, all of this is public information. I mean, it's not like I've got some, you know, some secret source that's providing me information. I mean, this is all, you know, from newspapers and the Internet and also interviews that I've had with a number of people, some of whom have, you know, worked at MLS um, or do work at MLS and other leagues around the around the around the country, um, the the basic notion of of this issue of this 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 trilateral approach to controlling the game that involves these three related entities you just mentioned UEFA, FIFA, U.S. Soccer, MLS, and the NFL is fairly fairly straightforward. I mean, as you probably know. Um, one of the things that's going on with the issue of the concept of the global standard of excellence for football. And, and the question I tried to answer in the book was really simple. It was, why doesn't the United States, which is the richest country in the world, why doesn't it have the best football league in the world? Or at least one of the best, that it competes on a par with the EPL and the Bundesliga especially when you consider that baseball, basketball, American football, and hockey are the best leagues in the world in those respective sports. Um, and the conclusion I reached after doing substantial research was that we really weren't looking, in some sense, under the rug. We weren't looking at what's going on behind the scenes. And what's going on behind the scenes is should be fairly obvious, although it really isn't unless you do the homework. The first thing that we've got to remember is that MLS was founded in large measure by NFL owners. The second thing that we have to remember is that 70% of the players in the NFL are black. 
They're African-Americans. What does that mean? I mean, it basically means that the United States has a pipeline of talent into the NFL that is worth billions of dollars annually. But the NFL has a series of problems that they themselves have created, um, which is obviously in the newspapers all the time, particularly related to concussions, but also related to things like Colin Kaepernick, sometimes always some issue out there. Not to mention the fact that the NFL, out of the four major leagues, pays the least average annual salary of the four leagues and also carries with it the risk of a career-ending injury that is much higher than the other four, the other three leagues. So what basically that means is that the NFL has found itself in the position of having to protect its position in the marketplace, despite the fact that it's the biggest and most powerful league. So I don't think it's an accident that there are NFL owners in MLS. Um, you build a billion-dollar stadium or more these days, and you play in it eight games a year unless you make the playoffs. And if that's the case, you may play in it 10 times a year. So the question is, why not use MLS as one of the ways to fill that stadium on an ancillary basis? The reason I'm bringing that up is because the reason MLS, I believe, is paying the low salaries that they're paying is because the last thing that, that the NFL wants to see, and quite frankly, the last thing that UEFA and FIFA want to see, is for this sport to be a mainstream sport that pays globally competitive wages to their athletes. Because if that's the case, you will see a migration away from American football to football. And that's not something they want to see. Why, why, do you, so why is it – just sorry to interrupt you real quick. Why is it that you, that you suppose UEFA, FIFA – uh, obviously, we we know domestically with the NFL why they wouldn't want potential NFL prospects to to walk away from American football and pick up uh, football or or soccer as it's called in America often. Why do you think UEFA and FIFA don't want to see that? I think for this very similar reasons. Um, if you look at you know the the UEFA Champions League, or if you look at any of the big five leagues that show up on TV in the United States or here in Brazil. Um, and you look at where the players come from, it's from literally all over the world, all over the world. So if the United States begins to have or creates a league that competes with the English Premier League or competes with the Bundesliga or La Liga or Serie A, that's going to change the dynamics of where those players wind up. Now, I'm not saying that all the players from Africa and South America are going to wind up in the United States. But today, Europe is the centrifugal force of global football. I mean, you don't hear about Argentina or Brazil unless it's the World Cup. For three years and 10 months, everybody is focused on Europe. The only time other countries in the world come to the table in terms of notoriety, in terms of players, in terms of possibilities, is when the World Cup comes around. 
For the other three years and 10 months, Europe is the center of the world. And that basically means that billions of dollars are at stake. So if all of a sudden the United States creates a world-class league in the United States, it, it means that a tremendous change in the, in the centralization of power for football changes, because the United States is a powerful country. The United States represents potentially a bipolar model as opposed to a unipolar model. And if the United States creates a world-class league in the United States that pays competitively, it also means that the United States serves an, as an anchor for a north-south relationship in the Americas. In other, in other words, Comenball and, and CONCACAF, the tendency would be to merge and create a rival to, to UEFA in the, in the Western Hemisphere. And of course, that rival would have a tremendous amount of revenue-generating potential. So, you know, imagine a, reband, a rebranded and a restructured version of football in the United States and Canada, along with Mexico, along with Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, Chile. I mean, you would have a powerhouse, a potential juggernaut on the other side of the ocean. And that would infect everything in terms of business models and revenue generation. Now, my opinion is that it would eventually enhance revenue on both sides of the water. But there's no question about the fact that initially it would change the revenue generating dynamics of football in Europe. So why is it that the U.S. Soccer Federation, which is is the national governing body for the sport in America, why is it that those involved with U.S. soccer and and Major League Soccer who who may not have NFL ties themselves, why why don't they aspire? to reach this global uh, level of excellence. Um, and, and before you answer, I want to, I want to highlight one of the things that you, you, you talked about to, to see if, uh, if maybe this ties in, but you said that MLS is the lid on the pressure cooker of demand for the sport in the USA and Canada. MLS's goal is a specific and strategic kind of growth namely growth to maintain occupancy of the top professional space in the U.S. and Canada. That is all. No more and no less. Why is U.S. soccer, why is MLS content with not reaching the global level of excellence, not pushing for this bipolar uh, set of, of power between the Americas and UEFA? Why, why are we not pushing to reach our, our best potential? I think that the issue goes back to the NFL. Uh, let, let's, let me put two things on the table. First, um, I, I think it's, it's safe to say, even though there may be disagreement, but I, I feel that the results speak for themselves. Um, the last election that brought Carlos Cordero to power as president of U.S. soccer is a pretty clear indication, and I speak about this in the book, that that MLS basically controls U.S. soccer. 
Um, now, how that took place and why, I think, is directly related to the change in voting power and vote, vote weighting at U.S. soccer. But I also think it's related to the fact that when you look at the history of U.S. soccer since the 94 World Cup and what's happened, and, you know, the last thing I want to do is get personal because from one perspective, this is all about business and how business works. But the fact of the matter is that U.S. soccer until the 2018 election was run by Sunil Gelati in large measure. And Sunil, and this is not, you know, this is not anything but public information. Sunil used to work for Robert Kraft. Um, Don Garber spent the first 16 or 17 years of his professional career working for the NFL. And those two individuals were basically running the sport in the United States and have been running the sport in the United States for the past roughly 20 years. So that's, I think, what's going on. Now, is that a, you know, a big negative? Yeah, in some sense it is, but I think it's just the reality of how, you know, business is done. I mean, if you are, you know, an, an owner and you were, you know, thinking long-term back in the 1990s about what this sport represented and how it could impact your other sport, uh, namely the NFL, I think you'd do the same thing. I don't think there's any mystery about that. I don't think there's anything that's, you know, that's hidden. It's all out in the open. I just think that we've gotten to a point where that business model and that branding strategy and the failure to adopt the global standard of excellence has placed the sport of football in juxtaposition to American football. And it's becoming more and more obvious that the demographics in the United States are demanding a better product. I can tell you that if, if, if the owners of MLS created the English Premier League or the equivalent of the Bundesliga in the United States, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, if we met the global standard of excellence in the United States, we would be obviously talking a different talk. But the fact of the matter is the global standard of excellence in the United States is exactly what needs to be avoided in order to minimize, from their perspective, minimize the impact on the NFL's talent pipeline. Now, you know, we haven't even dealt with the issue of Hispanics. Um, I mean, Hispanics in the United States, as you probably know, is the fastest growing uh, group in the, in the country. Um, I mean, the idea of Trump's wall on the southern border is absurd because, quite frankly, they've already taken it back. Um, I mean, Los Angeles is, a, is the second largest Spanish-speaking city on the planet behind Mexico City. So the idea of Hispanics in the United States, and quite frankly, from, from any, any perspective, the Hispanics are the launching pad for the cultural aspect of what's missing in the United States with respect to the sport. I mean, they totally get the culture. Um, obviously, we're not talking about Puerto Ricans. We're talking about largely Hispanics from Central America and Latin America and Mexico. Um, but 
technically speaking, if you look at the numbers, I mean, I think there are roughly 60 million Hispanics in the United States. That means that if you couple those, that group with European ethnic groups who have migrated to the United States since 1990 and add in, you know, other ethnic groups from, say, Africa or Asia, you've got easily close to 100 million people in the United States who come from football cultures that potentially represent an untapped revenue source for the sport. Um, not to mention, you know, the, you know, the numbers of youth that are now, I think, in a situation where we're literally dealing with what's short of, just a little short of chaos with youth soccer, youth football in the United States. It's completely unorganized. And that, of course, serves the, the quite frankly, MLS's business model perfectly. I mean, MLS has got no incentive to find the next Messi. On the contrary, um, they don't want that to happen. And I'm sure that, you know, Don Garber and everybody else will be quite irritated to hear this. But I think that that's absolutely true. It, it cuts in a direction that they would rather not go. If they found somebody like Messi, the first thing they would do would sell them to Europe because the last thing they want to do is create that kind of, of player talent in the country that would serve as a basis to take this sport to the next level on, on the basis of the five revenue generators of, of, of soccer clubs. And, you know, that's something we haven't really talked about, but there really are five revenue generating tools for football clubs. One is venues, and, and quite frankly, part of venues, only part of venues is attendance. Then you've got, obviously, TV and digital. And you've also got commercial, which is basically sponsorships. The other two revenue drivers, which we really don't have in the United States, are talent management um, and also competitions. And of course, those latter two are big in Europe. Um, but of those five revenue drivers, the United States is basically basing the entire professional league that we have on attendance alone. And even that is somewhat questionable because you really don't know how many tickets are being given away on a comp basis in the United States. But certainly looking at Atlanta and Seattle as exceptions, um, both of those teams are drawing more than 40,000 fans to, to, to a game. So I think that the potential is clearly there. The question is, how do we create our own Manchester cities and Man United's and Real Madrid's and Barcelona's and Bayern Munich's and PSG's in the United States. I think that's the question. I think that's a much more important question than promotion and relegation right now. Because right now, I mean, if, if we're promoted to MLS, you're simply being promoted to a higher level of mediocrity. That's not what we want. We want the global standard of excellence in the United States. And the question is how to, how to create that. Well, Thank you for coming on the show. It, it's some fascinating insight into, uh, you know, what you have found in terms of uh, research and background in, into the global game, the global standard of excellence, and the state of soccer in America and Canada. Um, I have posted um, on Twitter a link to your book. It's easy to find if you go to... Amazon, you can uh, 
purchase a copy there, the football manifesto, just type it in the search bar. It'll pull up. Uh, I believe it's the top, top link. When I even looked it up again this morning, uh, by Robert Wilson, uh, Robert, thanks you. Thanks. Thanks to you for, for coming on to the show and, and sharing your insight. We'd love to have you back on uh, soon to, to, to dive into some more of the topics because there is so much to talk about, so much to cover. So, uh, again, thanks for coming on the show and, and, uh, and joining us today. I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to uh, further conversations. Thank you. That is Robert Wilson. Um, he is uh, the author of the Football Manifesto. He is uh, doing an amazing job, uh, did an amazing job covering this this topic, going inside and kind of looking behind the scenes. Um, and and there, there are a lot of things there that you to, to, to read and learn about and kind of wrap your head around. And uh, I would encourage you to, to go pick up a copy of the book. Um, and and take a look at it. It, it. it would definitely, if you're on the fence about you know where's MLS, where's US soccer versus the global global game, it, maybe you are on one side of that ideological debate or not. Uh, it's worth a read. So thanks for joining the show. We will see you again tomorrow.